Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and today I'm delighted to be joined by my good friend Shale Rawal. Shale is a general internist at the University Health Network in Toronto. Hey Shale, how's it going? It's going great, Amol. So Shale, today you and I are going to be talking a little bit about our experience last week at the Society of General Internal Medicine Conference in Toronto. It was a, it was a pretty big deal. It really was. It was an impressive conference. Yeah, there are 1,800 internists across U.S. and Canada. I have to say it was both kind of inspiring to be part of such a big community. There were sort of really senior uh, investigators and a lot of trainees, and it was really kind of neat to be a part of. And also, I have to say there's a sort of phenotype. There's a bit of a GIM phenotype, and I, I don't know, for better or for worse, I felt right at home in the crowd. All right, so today Shale and I are going to depart a little bit from our usual uh, rounds table format of covering two major articles. So we're going to talk about some of the highlights we gleaned from participating in the conference. And so we're going to talk about sort of three topics in general. The first is uh, medication reconciliation, reducing adverse events, and the marquee study that we heard some of the preliminary results from by Dr. Jeffrey Schnipper. Uh, and then we're going to talk about super utilizers and high needs patients populations. And then finally, we're going to conclude and talk about service learning and community health workers. So, Shale, one of the projects that I found the most impressive was this large randomized control trial uh, called the Marquee Study about MedRec. And I'm not sure if you saw, they had about 12 different posters at the conference. Did you encounter or stumble upon any of them? I saw some posters, but I unfortunately missed the plenary discussion. It was a little early in the morning for you, Shale? I hadn't had my morning coffee yet. <laughs> okay, so um, this was a, a large five-site quality improvement intervention and evaluation from September 2011 to July 2014, and it was presented at the conference by Dr. Jeffrey Schnipper. So they intervened on non-ICU medical and surgical patients who were admitted to hospital, and they implemented a multifaceted intervention to reduce medication error in hospital. It was interesting because it's they basically had sort of nine different components to this toolkit, and they provided coaching uh, and some uh, guidance centrally through the Society of Hospital Medicine about how to reduce medication errors in all these different sites. And it was really pragmatic because all the sites included different components of the intervention, which had the strength of being more generalizable and allowed them to do a component analysis to examine perhaps which of the components of the intervention might have uh, been associated with uh, different outcomes. So their primary outcome was medication discrepancies. So basically comparing physician orders of medications versus a gold standard that was taken by um, the study pharmacist. What they found was that over the course of their intervention across the five sites, they conducted a, uh, an interrupted time series component analysis, and they found that during the time of the intervention, there was a 14% relative reduction in the number of adverse events or potential adverse medication events per month of the intervention. Now, we don't have all of the precise details around uh, the results yet, uh, we'll wait for the hopefully soon-to-be-coming uh, publication to, to get into the details around that. But certainly it seemed like a really promising intervention. And I think probably the, the most interesting takeaway for me was what they found 
uh, was effective and what they found was not effective and may, maybe even harmful. So they found three things were effective. The first was hiring staff for medication reconciliation and counseling around medication use. So I suppose that's not particularly surprising. They found that training staff for medication reconciliation and counseling uh, was also effective in reducing the rate of medication errors. And then clearly defining roles and responsibilities. So those three interventions they said were particularly effective. And then the two that were potentially harmful, and this got a little controversial, one is the implementation of new electronic health records was associated with more adverse events or potential adverse events. And we can talk a little bit about why that might be. And it was interesting, someone in the audience asked Dr. Schnipper which EHRs that was. And for <laughs> the uh, sake of not being sued, he declined to answer. Um, and then the other thing they found that was a little bit counterintuitive was that if they trained staff to take a best possible medication history, so not just do the medication reconciliation and discharge counseling, but to take a best possible medication history at the time of admission, they found that that intervention was associated with worse outcomes. Now that could have just been a fluke, um, or there are maybe some, they had some thoughts as to why that might be the case. So that was overall their, their study. Any, any thoughts, initial reactions? It's a fascinating approach to the issue. Um, I guess one of my questions is the adverse events that they measured, were they in hospital adverse events? Yeah, so it, without knowing all the precise details, it sounds like what they did was they had a study pharmacist who looked at the patient's medications uh, and did a gold standard medication history on the patient, separate from clinical care and picked out what they thought was the what the ideal regimen was for that patient in terms of what they should have been on in hospital and what medications they should have been discharged with. Okay. And then they compared that to what was actually ordered. And they found that uh, any discrepancies there, they called a potential adverse event or an error. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. That clarifies that question. So, and, and they did reconciliation, I guess, at the time of admission and discharge, but what about transitions in hospital that are high risk, like ICU to the war? Yeah, so it's 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 interesting. So first, they were looking at non-ICU patients specifically, um, but in terms of what facets of each, so the, the intervention was multifaceted. There was a toolkit of training, and part of it was focused on getting a best possible medication history at the time of admission. Part of it was focused around transitions at discharge um, and uh, and getting better medication counseling and medication reconciliation at that time. And different hospitals implemented different components of the intervention. So only one hospital inter implemented actually most of the components and the rest, uh, you know, picked and picked and chose as to what worked for their local institution. Um, so I think it was, you know, their intervention spanned the whole course of transitions and, and admission. I thought it was really neat that, so so first, this whole idea about implementing new electronic health records. So, I mean, you and I have both worked in multiple institutions um, and tried to manage various electronic health records. I think it's kind of intuitive as to why that could be harmful, implementing a new EHR. I agree. So they thought that there were a couple of things in particular Uh about implementing a new HR. So one is just the distraction of implement the amount of staff resources and attention occupied when you implement a new electronic health record. And that distracts from 
other quality improvement efforts and interventions. And so it's possible that just the, the sheer bandwidth required to do more than one thing is what could have some negative consequences. And then they talk about sort of flaws within the EHR themselves or flaws within the, with implementation of the EHR and appropriate training of use and that kind of thing. So um, I think that one is a little, a little easy to understand. The why it would be detrimental to train staff to take a best possible medication history is a little bit harder to wrap your head around. So they thought that one is that there was no certification of competency after their training. So they weren't sure if maybe, you know, training people uh, led to diverse sets of competence and they weren't sure if, you know, they could really have a quality control on the amount of training and the type of training that was given. The other thought was that maybe the wrong people were being trained. Their last point was that perhaps it was diffusion of responsibility, where if you have more people involved in managing the medications for a patient, you result in a diffusion of responsibility and less ownership over the actual medication reconciliation process. That last part is very compelling, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so, especially in these complex health environments where there's you know so many moving pieces and many people with their fingers in the pie. Exactly. Did I mix enough metaphors? You there? really did. I hope it was a tasty pie. <laughs> okay. I, I have a question for yeah. you. Well, was the is the toolkit publicly available? Because that's one of the things that I find most interesting about a lot of these interventions that they're they're available. You can try them out in your local setting and see what parts work and what don't. Yeah. So I think that a big part of this uh, study was supported by the Society for Hospital Medicine, and I suspect that now that they're developing their results, uh, the knowledge translation piece and sort of pushing this out so people have access and and spreading it beyond and trying to figure out what works is going to be a big part of the next steps. So they presented to us the uh, some of the components of the toolkit, and I, I'm, but I'm not 100% sure if they're available yet. We'll look into it. If they are, we'll link to it on our uh, website. Okay, why don't we move on to talk about super utilizers. So this was something that it's, I think you sought out and, and went to a bunch of sessions about this uh, at the conference. So tell me, what, what is a super utilizer? Well, maybe I'll turn it back on you, Amol, and ask you, what is a super utilizer to you? Okay, so my familiarity with this term comes really from the Atul Gawande article, which I think he called hot spotters. Um, and when I think of super utilizers, I think about patients who have... Uh, a lot of social frailty, multiple comorbidities, um, and use the healthcare system much more than the rest of the population. Well, that's great. And I think, so I attended two sessions that explored the idea of super utilizers. And all of those sessions were grounded in the Atul Gawande paper in 2011, published in The New Yorker, where he really chronicled the experience of Dr. Jeffrey Brenner. He's a primary care physician in Camden, New Jersey, one of the poorest and most violent cities in the United States, where at least in that city, 1% of the population accounts for 30% of healthcare wow. costs. So okay. it's quite a skewed ratio. And a lot of the reasons for that are what you've described related to the social determinants of health. And what he did was he formed the Camden Health Coalition created teams to hopefully intervene on the natural history of these patients. His little experiment was quite successful. He quoted a reduction in about 50% of healthcare costs. And so that theme, at least, has really taken off. There's a lot of funding and discussion from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, on this. And so I think that's what the impetus for some of these sessions was. 
Can I just take one second to reflect on how in healthcare, I think we spend so much time talking about the academic work, especially, you know, reflected in our own podcast here. Uh, but, it, you know, the work by Gawande in the popular press is so compelling and inspires so much work beyond that as a result. I think that's just sort of a neat thing. And I wonder if we're, we often maybe to our peril sort of neglect that aspect of uh, communication. I think it speaks to the power of storytelling. Um, and and certainly the story of what happened in Camden was very persuasive to other communities with similar issues. And so the first session I went to, I guess, tried to ground some of this in more academic work. So it was um, a talk given by San, Sang Bin Hong, um, a physician at the Cleveland Clinic Health System. And what she and colleagues did was that they went into their big database of patients who were followed exclusively through Cleveland Clinic facilities with Medicare coverage and tried to identify the top 10% of healthcare users in terms of total indirect and direct costs. Once they identified those folks, they used very complicated statistical methods that I will not presume to understand um, to identify five phenotypes of super high utilizers, which is interesting because when you kind of brought up your understanding of a super utilizer, um, I kind of think of one phenotype in a way with multiple factors. They identified five, at least for their healthcare system, which I thought was interesting. So, Yeah, I think that's totally interesting. I agree with you. I, I have a single picture in my mind and not to be pejorative about it, but I think of people who have comorbid cardiac and respiratory and metabolic conditions. So a patient with obesity, diabetes, COPD, heart failure, and maybe alcoholism or something. And that's sort of the phenotype that I think about who we see being readmitted to hospital and showing up in our general medicine wards all the time. That's that's what I think of when I think of super and, and that's what I thought of too. And and I so that's why I found this talk very helpful. So sh- so she and colleagues identified five main phenotypes. The first is um, an ambulatory care phenotype. That was really characterized by people who have cancer, are getting chemotherapy, have cancer and chemo-related complications, which is- That makes sense. Makes sense. Um, the second was surgical. So these were patients who came into hospital for a sur- single surgical intervention that had complications. Again, makes sense. And also makes sense why we may not think about that intuitively as- Internists. Hospitalist internists. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The third was the critically ill. So this was people who were admitted to the ICU. They had the highest inpatient and overall costs. That population was really characterized by heart failure, arrhythmias, cardiac arrest. Those were the conditions that lit up in that cluster. The fourth is, I think, the phenotype that you're describing, frequent care. So patients who have multiple emergency room visits, outpatient visits, have some psychiatric comorbidity and have respiratory conditions like COPD and asthma that are prone to exacerbation. And then the last was mixed utilization. So the mixed bag of a little bit of each column um, that had no specific diagnosis or characteristic that was associated with the phenotype. So it was a really neat discussion. I have to say pretty much everyone in the room took a picture of her slide that described the five phenotypes. And then promptly tweeted it. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Uh, that's that's really neat. I, so a couple of things come to mind, I guess, by the limitations of their use of Medicare data, which is predominantly over 65-year-old patients. 
one of the things that we hear about in terms of high users of healthcare in Ontario is um, uh, visits by, by uh, younger patients with either complex congenital disease, some neonatal intensive care, or patients who have uh, significant mental health issues. And I guess some of those populations are also excluded from this work. Exactly. And I think there were some specific exclusion criteria related to the psychiatric comorbidities and the substance use. And that certainly is another phenotype that's not well captured in this. So my first reflection on this is, sounds like not one population um, and rather you need to intervene differently for all these different subpopulations of people. Yep, and those were the questions that this brings up, um, because I think that the popular model is really that single phenotype and interventions targeted to that phenotype, although some of those may apply um, more broadly. Yeah, for sure. Really neat. So I wanted to talk about the our third topic today, which is about service learning and community health workers. We both saw talks by uh, Dr. Shreya Kangovi from the Perelman School of Medicine at UPenn, and She talked about their implementation of a community health worker program to try and address some of these social determinants of health. And I saw a talk by her about how she's using that infrastructure to train medical students Mm. and how that can change the culture of medical education and service learning and how that, that can hopefully down the road help us as a medical community be more in tune with addressing some of these social determinants of health. So I thought that was super interesting. And then you saw something from the other side, right? I did. So I attended a session about how to sustain interventions to reduce healthcare disparities. So in that session, um, the same program was discussed from a different angle, um, where a lot of the um, content of the discussion was how do you make a business case for these types of interventions if you recognize that you care about patients who have um, low socioeconomic status, how do you create a system where um, people who have resources are held accountable and also interested in helping that population? Yeah, so maybe why don't we start with her program, this training of community health workers. So we can just briefly describe it, and hopefully we don't do it any injustice. But effectively at UPenn, they've been able to train a large cohort of community health workers who are not uh, health professionals in in the traditional sense of the word, uh, but who are community members who help address some of the social issues for patients who are marginalized or at dis- at, at a socioeconomic disadvantage. Yeah, she used a great term in the talk that I attended. She called them demographic mirrors. So they are truly reflective of the population that you're trying to serve. So. Um, you know, we know that health professionals are not um, consistent with the pop- general population. So, um, yeah, Neat. that was like cool. That and so, so did she talk a little bit about the development of that program and and how they've created a business case for that program? She did. Um, she did. So, and a lot of it um, related to the fact that low income patients are expensive for health systems, and there is some degree of motivation then to reduce costs. And that's a way of helping ensure that a high resource community is interested in a low resource community. And she leveraged that case. Um, At least that's what I came away with from the talk to seek funding to train the community health workers. 
And then they studied the community health workers in terms of their impact on readmission rates to hospital. Is that right? Exactly. Okay. And so they've developed this, you know, large cadre of community health workers. And so the talk that I saw was her thoughtful approach to using that infrastructure for medical education. So one of the challenges that Dr. Kangovi articulated with medical education is I think we all acknowledge that our medical schools try to train us about social determinants of health and cultural factors that affect health, but these issues are really hard to teach. Classroom-based environments are really not ideal. And so a variety of schools have come up with their own methods of what they call service-based learning. There's a lot of student-led clinics for uh, marginalized populations, but there are a few challenges that make that really difficult to do. So she articulated a couple of them. One is continuity. So as you said, the trust aspect of working in marginalized populations is so important. And one of the problems with turnover with medical students is that you lose that continuity. So anything that's student-driven as a service project or as a health provision project, healthcare provision project, frequently lacks that continuity in order to make it an effective intervention. So that was the one issue that she identified. And the other is power dynamics. Again, like you said, that students typically don't reflect the marginalized populations that they work in. And also what Dr. Kangovi said was this has some challenges for their students' ability to learn in that environment if they feel as the, if they walk into that environment sort of at a power advantage they may not be as like able to take advantage of a learning opportunity in that environment and that may cause create a barrier. So they created this apprenticeship model where they had students embedded with the community health workers uh, for two weeks at a time. So the community health worker provides that continuity, develops trust with the patients and has that longitudinal relationship. And when the student is placed in that environment as an apprentice, they no longer have that power dynamic of of being at a power advantage and so they're sort of automatically humbled in that environment Um, so i thought it was like a really neat model that they suggested and one of the big things that came away from their qualitative evaluation of this project was that students found that they were better able to appreciate the fine details of the lived experience of patients at disadvantage And then the other thing, and I thought this was probably the most compelling and interesting finding, was that students began to believe that difficult social issues are changeable as opposed to unmodifiable, which I think is frequently a frustration that we develop uh, as physicians is that's, you know, something I can't address. It's something I can't deal with. So I'm just going to make sure you're on the right set of medications and move on. It's really fascinating. I mean, I can imagine that there's a whole host of ethical issues associated with it, but it sounds like they've had a very thoughtful approach to it. It'd be interesting to see if these feelings um, are sustained through the course of training as a resident and beyond. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that we probably don't do well enough is really evaluating the effect of our medical education environments, whether that's undergrad medical education or postgrad in residency, on practice. Right. right. And, and how, how do these environments actually affect our ability to practice? So super, super interesting. Any last thoughts on the community health worker topic? Two thumbs up. Okay, perfect. So uh, thanks, Jill. That was a really good chat. Why don't we conclude, as always, with our good stuff segment? Tell me what caught your attention 
from the world of medicine uh, in the last week? So I wanted to share uh, an essay that was actually circulated to me by a colleague. It's a graphic essay published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in 2013. Okay. So is a graphic essay, does that mean that it's, I have no idea what that means. So it's not pie charts or bar charts. It's actually, um, have you ever read a graphic novel? So like a comic book. Yes, like a comic book. Okay. Uh, Exactly, actually. I've never read a graphic novel myself. This was the first graphic essay I had ever seen. Um, But it's a comic. It's written by a physician who's a professor of uh, medicine in the humanities with an illustrator. So it's a comic that describes an experience. And this one's called Missed It. It looks at the experience of missing a diagnosis in a patient and having a bad outcome for that patient. It's really quite compelling, very moving, and something that I share now with trainees when I'm on service. Awesome. That's a really cool... I have to say, Annals does a lot of neat sort of -of out-of-the-box kind of programming, if we call it that. Um, That's really neat. Yeah, thanks. Perfect recommendation. Okay, uh, my recommendation is a little more uh, traditional. Uh, It was a graphic interview. No, it was just an interview (laughs) um, with the brand new Surgeon General of the United States of America, Vivek Murthy, um, which was published in JAMA. So Dr. Murthy is one of the most impressive human beings. He's 37 and and has accomplished, you know, a lifetime's worth uh, in that time. And this was an interview with him, uh, and it was really refreshing. So he is self-deprecating. He, he makes the point that he is not the youngest Surgeon General of the United States. And in fact, there were two other younger than him, specifically the ones appointed by Ulysses S. Grant, and Rutherford B. Hayes, as in the first two ever surgeons general. <laughs> so he talks about that. He talks about his roots. His father grew up on a farm in South India. And then when it comes to the hot-button political issue that almost torpedoed his nomination for surgeon general, he has developed a perfectly political response. So he was asked about whether he's going to remain an advocate for gun control. And his response was, that as Surgeon General, his duty is to work on the issues that are of the utmost public health importance and affect the most number of Americans. And uh, he had commented on gun control really in the light of one of his patients who was affected by gun violence, and that you know he would really be for focusing on issues of national importance. So it was great to sort of watch his full-fledged transition into a completely political animal with that response. Um, and then he finally concludes with a little blurb on what he does to stay healthy, which includes all sorts of wonderful things like meditating every morning and changing his meetings into walking meetings where possible. And really a, a fun read. And so that's my recommendation. All right. Shayla, it was a pleasure to have you on. We should do this again. It sounds wonderful. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye.